All right, let's go to prayer here before we get into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we're just grateful that we can be here. We're grateful that uh, we are um, just being able to to think back on uh, all that's written in the New Testament and how uh, it fulfills what has happened in uh, the Old Testament, what the Old Testament points us to as the, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And and Lord, we just don't want to lose sight of that at Christmas time, that um, Jesus was born to die, to die in our place on the cross, and then to be resurrected, resurrected uh, to life and uh, to, to lead us in that. In fact, we will one day, if we have put our faith in him, we will be resurrected to eternal life as well. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. We, we thank you for our time together. Now we just pray that what time together we have together here um, afterwards, even in interacting, that we would be an encouragement to one another, uh, strengthen one another's faith. Um, but we also just lay before you this time in the Word. And we ask and pray that you would um, open our hearts to it, um, help us to see where you meet us there. We also pray for those that are sick, that are in need of your healing power. God, we just pray for their recovery strengthening of their spirit, their bodies, and, um, and Lord, just to help us to see what role we might play in helping them too, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been uh, doing this series here, just the dawn of redeeming grace, focusing in on um, Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and this is our fourth and final Sunday in this uh, series, Dawn of Redeeming Grace. And uh, today what we're doing is we're looking at um, really the travels of uh, Joseph and his family, right? Joseph, uh, Jesus, and Mary, uh, um, they're doing some traveling. We'll see what that's about. And so uh, if you are able to, why don't you just stand with me in honor of the Word of God. I'll, go, I'll read this, but if you're able to stand, why don't you stand in honor of the Word of God. And I'll just read alone here, and let's just follow along uh, with the words. Now this is uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And I'm locked. Or maybe not. No, yes, I am. Can you help me, Linda? There you go. You can go ahead and change it for me then. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Uh, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw... Uh, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18 then says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. All right, we'll see if I actually have control. Yay. Okay. So uh, outlining this passage is is fairly straightforward, Um, really. these three sections, verses 13 to 15, and then 16 to 18 and 19, 23, break down nicely because they all have to do with something being fulfilled, okay? So we, we read the little section, and at the very end of each of the sections, it has some kind of prophecy or something that was known about the Messiah would be fulfilled. And, and that's really kind of how I'm breaking down the message today in those three components. Um, you know, sometimes when you you see something repeated often in Scripture. You think, there's, there's really a point here, right? And I think Matthew, has, um, and you need to know this, Matthew is really, his audience that he's writing to is primarily Jewish. Okay? And so, so knowing that, it'll make a lot of sense that he's trying to draw these uh, connections and showing the connections between what's happening with the birth of Jesus and even with the, the family of Jesus as they're traveling around here as something that was foretold, okay? Because the Jews would be looking for fulfillment. They're looking to see, okay, we know what our scriptures have said about the Messiah, and Matthew is just making those connections for them. He's, he's trying to show them Jesus is the one, right? And, um, and that's what everybody has to come to terms with. That they need to, as they look into Jesus as they read the Gospels, really, and I would encourage anyone who's investigating Jesus and looking into who he really is, is you need to read these really kind of four biographies, if you will, of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they're all about the life of Jesus. And um, go there with uh, a heart to seek and know what the truth is, and I believe that the Lord will reveal himself to you and, and show you that Jesus is the Christ. And you'll see, in fact, I think it's actually in the Gospel of John towards the end, it says, you know, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. It's the purpose of these uh, witnesses, these Gospel witnesses. So, um, so we've got the family's escape to Egypt, and then the massacre of the Bethlehem boys, which actually, if you, you remember what we just read, it's, it's the region, not just the city of Bethlehem, but the region there. Uh, that uh, these uh, young boys, ages two and under, were were murdered. And then the move to Nazareth after that. So let's start off here with the family's escape to Egypt. Um, now, in that section, verses 13 to 15, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream again. This is uh, a regular way of God communicating with Joseph at this time. And it happens a couple more times in uh, our passage today. And it's, it's you know, God's going to get a word in any way, 
right? And, and to Joseph, this is how he's doing it through these um, uh, angelic beings, in a sense, speaking to him through these dreams. And so um, the word is from this dream that Herod wants to search out your child Jesus and kill him. Last week, we dialed into the fact that, well, why would Herod want to kill this little baby? Well, it's because uh, he obviously put stock in what the wise men were saying that they had heard about this baby boy, that he is the king of the Jews. And so, meaning to him, that would mean a threat to his throne, and he wouldn't have that. Uh, He would not have that at all. So, to uh, eliminate the threat to his throne, he's going to seek to kill uh, Jesus. And, um, and so the threat is coming. Uh, Joseph gets the warning, and it says he arose and took the child and his mother by night. That's verse 14, and departed Egypt. They're taken on at night, taken off you not, at night. You know that he's either, either trying to stay under the radar, which is possible, or just realizing the urgency of the need to leave right away. But either way, you see, again, that pattern in Joseph's life of obedience. The word of the Lord tells him to do something, he does it. No delay, and just a great example to all of us. Um, Now, what's happening here is uh, verse 15, uh, at the end of that little section here, it says, um, it says when, uh, it's actually a quotation, or part of a quotation from Hosea, one of the Old Testament prophets, Hosea 11.1. And this is the, we have up here the entire quotation from Hosea 11. One, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, um, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in the book of Hosea, but you need to kind of understand a little bit about what is he talking about. In the context of Hosea, Israel, that's a group of people, Right? And so God was calling this group of people, Israel, his son, right? And so uh, what do we know uh, was happening there uh, with the Israelites in Egypt? Anybody? They were enslaved, right? Pharaoh had um, the Israelites uh, enslaved, and they were building things for him, doing all kinds of things, right, in slavery, and... um, God heard their prayers for deliverance, we're told, and God sent a deliverer, didn't he? Moses was his man, and of course, God did the delivering, but Moses delivered the messages to Pharaoh, didn't he? And uh, so, it's it's just interesting that this passage in Hosea, which speaks of uh, this deliverance out of Egypt of God's people, is also being linked up with the one and only Son of God, Jesus, that he would be the ultimate deliverer of us from our sins. He would deliver us from our sins. In fact, you remember in, the, in Matthew chapter 1, it says, you know, he will be called Jesus because he will save us from our sins. He's going to deliver us from ourselves, if you will, okay? And so there's this uh, common connection of deliverance There's been a lot written about uh, these parallels between Moses and him helping deliver uh, Israel, and then also uh, Jesus, you know, coming to deliver us from our sin. Because what happened with Moses when he was first born? 
his life was under threat too, right? And his mother put him in a reed basket, right? Floated him down the street and he was picked up by somebody in the palace and raised there, right? And so here you have Jesus' life under, a threat, under threat as a baby boy, right? And yet God is saving him. His hand is on him all the way. So lots of parallels there. But I think the thing that we just need to know is that, um, and I want to read to you something that Matt um, DeYoung, uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote, a pastor, and he, he says this about this passage in Hosea and the connecting these dots here to the passage in Matthew. He says, Matthew understood, uh, he said he was, wasn't trying to give Hosea 11 a new meaning, but he did see something messianic in Hosea's words. Jesus would be the faithful son called out of Egypt, filling up what was lacking in the first faithless son, Israel. From his Genesis to Exodus, to his baptism in the Jordan, to his 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was identifying himself with the covenant people. He was the embodiment of Israel. So he's like saying, you know, Jesus is kind of going through some of these things as Israel did, but faithfully, faithfully, right? So when Jesus fled Herod and went to Egypt, it brought to a climax the work of deliverance that began in the exodus of Israel and was now coming to completion in the exodus of Jesus. So so this first fulfillment, in a sense, is, is Jesus filling this role and saying he's going to be delivering his people and he also is walking faithfully uh, and being true to God, unlike Israel, right? Who were, who were, uh, that group of people was constantly departing from God, right? So we have in the Old Testament, God saved his people out of Egyptian slavery using his servant Moses. And in the New Testament, God shows us having his great mercy once again on a greater scale by sending us the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. Right, so that's what this first connection is about, this first section, Matthew, making those connections for the Jewish people and for us to see. Now, the next section is quite dark, right? quite dark, uh, just these, in these few verses. Let me just remind you what they say here, verses 16 to 18. Um, it says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. Well, how had, how had he been tricked by the wise men? Well, last week we saw what happened was the wise men were truly coming to worship the baby Jesus, right? They were coming to worship the king of kings. Um, Herod said, well, why don't you tell me where, when you find him, let me know so I can come and worship him too. Although we knew, uh, if, we, if you knew more to the story, that that was not his motive. His motive, obviously, to know where he was so that he could kill him, right? So that's, and so what happened was, after the wise men had spent some time there with um, Jesus and his family, then it says they were warned by God to go back another way, right, and not to get word back to, uh, to King Herod. So the trickery was, by the wise men was that they're not going to go back and tell Herod where baby Jesus is, right? So it says when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. He had asked the wise men when he first, Herod had asked the wise men when he first encountered them, you know, when did you first see that star? And so then he's calculating, right, to see 
uh, when, you know, how, how, uh, what age children is he going to need to murder, right? In order to try to make sure that he gets this one child. That's terrible, right? And then it says, um, verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so, uh, verse 18, uh, here in Matthew chapter 2, it's a quotation from Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter 31. So I've got some verses up here. I want to show you just three verses from Jeremiah chapter 31. And let's see why Matthew would be including this, right? So we, we saw that the first inclusion of a, of a fulfilled prophecy was to show us that Jesus is uh, our deliverer, right? And so now let's take a look at these verses. So verses 15 to 17 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, that's almost an exact, pretty much an exact quotation, right? Okay, now verse 16 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, and there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Who is they? These children, uh, these exiles, okay? Verse 17 There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And so there is in here um, the context of Jeremiah, this word coming from the Lord is saying, yes, um, there is a weeping going on because uh, the people of God in the context of this this prophecy, of this word from the Lord, is they're being taken away from their homeland. God is allowing the Assyrians to come in and to to take them out of their homeland, to exile them because he's disciplining them, because they have departed. He's uh, time and time again in in the Old Testament Scriptures, we see, uh, you know, why God was allowing this to happen. It was he was disciplining his children. Now, sometimes during these exiles, what would happen is families would be split up. Families would be split up. And so you can just imagine, right, if you're a mother, that your children are getting taken over here to one city and you're getting taken to another. I mean, it just would tear your heart out, right? And so that's why this weeping. Now, why Rachel? Well, Rachel is considered by many to be kind of the, the mother of the children of Israel. And so and she's, she's died at this point. She's dead in her grave. But, but the prophet is saying it's like Rachel is in her grave weeping for all Israel because her children is being scattered, and they are no more. And so there is this sadness because of the discipline that's happening. But I think what's, what's interesting is that in this Jeremiah prophecy, though, there's a word of hope, isn't there? He says here, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. In other words, there will be a day when God's going to gather his people back, right? And, and, and they did. They did return back to Jerusalem, right? And so um, this is what is being spoken of here, right? And, uh, of course, uh, Matthew is, 
is in a sense saying, well, all those mothers in Bethlehem and the region who are weeping reminds him of this word of the Lord that came through the prophet Jeremiah, right? Of this terrible thing that was happening, uh, the people exiling, the families being split apart, but there will be a reuniting. And so there's a message of hope there. And I think that's something that we need to hang on to. Actually, later on in Jeremiah 31, if you read on, it speaks of God promising a new covenant in that same chapter, Jeremiah 31. Um, And in fact, we see Jesus speaking that he is the fulfillment of this new covenant uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 26. Just two verses I'll read for you. This is what Jesus, he's he's breaking bread with his disciples, right, before... um, uh, you know, this is like the, the Last Supper, right? And so uh, Matthew 26, 27, 28. So chapter 26, verses 27, 28 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is saying he is the one that's going to establish this new covenant. And it'll be in his blood because it'll be, have to come through the crucifixion uh, followed by the resurrection, right? Jeremiah in chapter 31 is saying, yes, you're in exile, there will be a returning, and there will be a new covenant, okay? And so we see Matthew, again, making connections here that Jesus is the one, right? He, he will be saved from this, um, killing of these baby boys, and he will bring hope to his people and to all who will put their hope in him. Right? So now the next section here is the move to Nazareth. And I'm having trouble moving to Nazareth too. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, all right, so in this section, verses 19 to 23, are the last of our three sections where there's this prophetic connection. Uh, again, the purpose being, I want to show you that Jesus really is the Christ. I want to show you, Matthew's saying, that he is the one. And we've seen this all along, right, from the genealogies to everything. He keeps making these uh, pointers back to the Old Testament, right? Now, verse 19 there in Matthew chapter 2 says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life, child's life are dead. So, hey, it's safe to go back now. It's safe. Herod's out of the way. And uh, verse 21, And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But... When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So that the Spirit of God just steering him, avoiding conflict, right? Uh, Just to the right place, uh, to the district of Galilee, and then to a city in that district called Nazareth. It says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, 
that he should be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene. Now, I challenge you to find any verse in the Bible that says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. There isn't one. Okay? So why would Matthew say that this is some kind of a fulfillment? And this is a question, uh, and I think uh, I have a good answer. But I'm saying if you're looking for that like quotation like we found from Jeremiah and Hosea, you're not going to find it. Okay? Um, but we do have some information. Um, here I've got up here, Jer- uh, verse 23 is not a direct quote of any specific prophecy, but a reference to the fact that Messiah would be despised like those from Nazareth. Okay, that's the best connection I can find that, uh, that, that Matthew would say. This is the way it was said it was going to be, right? Um, not that he would necessarily be a Nazarene, but the Nazarenes were despised. Um, how do we know that? <clears throat> well, in John chapter 1, verse 46, <clears throat> it said, quote, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember that? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they were speaking to, you know, come and hear this guy, you know, uh, the Savior, and he's, he's from the town of Nazareth. And they're like, dude, you know, that's like on the wrong side of the tracks. Can anything good come out of there, right? Um, and, and so, now, why would we think that the Messiah would be despised like this? Well, uh, the suffering servant is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected my men, and we didn't value him. Okay, just like the Nazarenes. Okay, they despised the Nazarenes. They, you know, they, they uh, did not value them as a group of people. And so they're saying, you know, the suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to be rejected. He'll be despised just like them, okay? Well, and I think Charlie had a passage up there that you read in John chapter 1 where it says that he was not received by his own, right? He was rejected, okay? And so we can see clearly, I think, what Matthew is doing here is he's making that connection. He's showing us that, hey, this was foretold that the Messiah would be rejected, right? Just like these Nazarenes are rejected by our people. Now, so you might say, okay, this is interesting. You know, we can go through the fulfilled prophecies and, and make the connections. And I think that's important because when you read your Bible, you want to understand, you know, why is that there, right? I think anytime you read your Bible, you need to say not only what does it say and what does it mean, but why is it there? I think it's there, like we said before, because Matthew is trying to show to his his, his people that Jesus is the Messiah, and we too can learn that. But I also want to point out two things that we can see um, that are demonstrated through what's happened here, through these travels that Jesus and his family have had to make. One is that the cause of Jesus Christ does not depend on government support or power. Um, Herod was totally against them. He pulled out all the stops to try to kill them, but he couldn't stop them, right? And so it's like, you know, you're not going to thwart the plan of God, okay? You can try, but it's just not going to happen. And so that was just struck me as I was thinking about this, is that, you know, um, 
uh, well, Psalm 20, Psalm 20, verses 6 and 8. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't show you this. Uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth there? Um, Psalm 20, verses 6 to 8 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is a, a, a psalm where the psalmist saying, listen, uh, we're not going to put our trust in, in chariots and horses or governments or whatever. Um, you know, we put our trust in God. And, and that's, he's the only one we can trust. And so uh, I think this is a very encouraging truth for us as believers um, you know, I want our government to be supportive of religious freedom. I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing, okay? Uh, but even if that does not continue to happen, nothing, nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going forth. Nothing. No law, nothing, okay? And that's very encouraging to me. Just, I'm, not, I'm not being a doomsdayer or anything like that. I'm just saying no matter what happens politically, as a believer, you don't need to worry because the gospel is going to go forth, right? Um, it's interesting. The very last words in the book of Acts, I didn't put this, write this on my notes, but this uh, reminds me of it. The, and go, to, go to the book of Acts, the very last couple of verses. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And you go to the very end of the book of Acts and speaking about Paul and the church, and so on. So Acts 28. All right, so, and, and uh, let's see here. The heading in my Bible right before that, in verse 17 of Acts 28, says, Paul in Rome. But if you go down to verse 28, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And then verse 30, it says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I love that because he's just saying, you know, all this stuff that happened to Paul, you know, uh, uh, you know just all kinds of persecution, starting these churches and beatings and all this stuff, here he is. At the very end here of this uh, book of Acts saying, you know what? He kept going with boldness and in those words, without hindrance. Nothing was going to stop the gospel, okay? So don't forget that. Don't forget that. Regardless um, of what country you're in, regardless of the political situation, right? regardless of any particular law, um, God doesn't need the support of any government, Okay? He's sovereign over all of that. Now, the second thing, the last thing I want to mention is that there, I mean, there's just, you read this section, it's just evil. The whole thing about Herod, I mean, he's just evil. Um, and I just keep thinking about there is a constant battle going on, a constant battle going on for the souls of men and women. In Herod's case, he, was, he, he didn't know it, <laughs> really. But he's, he's trying to stop the Savior of the world, <laughs> right? He didn't really know. He, just, he was looking, he's looking to save his own uh, dynasty, right? But, but just think about 
right? This is all on a spiritual level, if you will, on a cosmic level. There is a spiritual battle going on for the hearts and minds of men and women, okay? Constantly going on. Our enemy, Satan, seeks to destroy and kill people. Uh, He does not want them to come to faith in Christ. He knows that he has lost the ultimate battle at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So the next best thing that he can do is to try and feed people lies about who Jesus is, right? So that they won't receive him as Savior. Or if they're already believers, the best thing he could do with a believer is try to render them ineffective spiritually, kind of spiritually weak or complacent. That's the best thing he could do with a believer. He can't can't, uh, prevent them from going to heaven once they know Christ. And so I think just this passage just reminds me of that spiritual battle that we're in and that we need to make sure that we are engaged in that battle. How do we do that? Well, um, again, the Apostle Paul speaks to us in Ephesians chapter 6, and he tells us in verses 18 to 20, one of the best things that you could do as a believer in engaging in the spiritual battle, and that's prayer. He says in verse 18 to 20 of Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit, With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In other words, he's like, you know, get those spiritual antennas up. You be on the front line spiritually praying for your brothers and sisters. You pray for their spiritual strength. If you see it waning, you come over and you try to to lift them up, okay? You do it in your prayers, and you do it by physically your presence and your words of encouragement, exhortation, reproof, whatever it might need to be, right? That's what the Lord wants us to do. And so there's, we're, we're going to battle in prayer. He says, keep alert with all perseverance, right? He's like, don't stop praying for your brothers and sisters. Don't stop praying for people that don't know Christ. Keep taking to them to the throne of God. And then he says in verse 19, um, he's asking for some, some prayer support himself. He says, and also pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. How about you? Do you need some, you need some wisdom and words on what to say to people? Pray, right? Pray. Ask others to pray for you, to know what to say, how to share with people with the gospel. He says, for which, and then verse 20 says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Again, he's just constantly and amazingly always praying for boldness. And he is bold. <laughs> just amazes me. Paul's bold as anybody that you read about, but he continues to pray for boldness. Okay? And so I think um, just the, the last thing I'll say is this in regards to prayer and this spiritual battle and how I think Herod just brings to mind the battle that's going on, is that um, sometimes we think too little of the power of the gospel. We think too little of the simplicity of it. Um, Like it's too simple for people. Um, That's just a lie. Okay, that's a lie from the devil. And what we need to do is just really just ask for for courage to, to share the simple message, to to be to love on other people, yes, to be kind, do good, but, but they've got to hear that message. They've got to hear the message. And how does anybody become a Christian? They've got to hear the message. 
They've got to hear that message. And at one point, if you are a Christian, you were open to it, right? You received it. You might have been an opposer of it. You know, I used to, I used to make fun of Christians in high school. I, I mean, I, you know, I used to oppose. I mean, I'm not proud of that, but I'm saying, think about where you've come from. And then, you know, nobody's beyond the reach of the gospel. So we need to be in battle and prayer and ask for boldness and then, by the grace of God, open our mouths. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this reminder in this passage. Herod and the chief priests and the scribes all setting themselves up against Jesus as his enemies. And if we're honest, before coming to Christ, we all have done this. We, in a sense, we've all uh, been against Jesus. Instead of bowing in full surrender before the King of Kings, we have been afraid of how Jesus is going to invade our kingdom and our lives and our plans and our desires. And this reality is that in our, in our minds and our hearts, we have all, at one point in time, rejected Jesus. And this is just, this is the core of what it means to be a sinner, is to be rebellious in our hearts. But sinners are who Jesus came to save, and we're so thankful for that. that we are sinners, and we have been rebellious in our hearts towards you, even towards your son Jesus, prior to coming to faith. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, leading us to the cross. So thankful that we have a deliverer in Jesus who came safely out of Egypt and grew up in this little no-name town called Nazareth. Lord, thank you so much that this life that Jesus promises, this full life now and this eternal life in the future is available to anyone put their full trust in you. We're so blessed to know that. In Jesus' name we pray.